Father, your word tells us that in Jesus Christ, we have a faithful high priest who uh, comes to help us in our time of need and who brings us and gives us access to the throne of God so that we can come boldly to you. And so, Father, this morning, Lord, as men, we settle our hearts and we come before you, Lord. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as you look over this room this morning, it brings you delight to see uh, that there, there's a remnant, Lord. There are men in this world that still have a heart to seek after you, that still recognize, Lord, that we can do nothing without you, that uh, the, true, the, true, the true expression of manhood is to bend the knee and to call upon your name and to recognize that, uh, that you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that you've created all things and that for your pleasure they are and were created. And so we ask you, Lord, this morning that you would just send your spirit to us. We know, Lord, that you hear us. We know that uh, we're praying according to your will. We know that, uh, that you desire to speak to us, that you desire to lead our steps, that you desire to teach us and lead us in the way that we should go. And so we pray, Father, that you would write your word upon our hearts. We pray that you would put your will in our mind, that you would put your counsels uh, in our conscience and our understanding, Lord, that we might just live godly lives and that we might be godly men. We pray this morning for our families, Lord. We ask that you would be with our wives. We pray that they would be filled afresh with your Holy Spirit, that even where they are right now, they would sense your, your, your comforter, your love, Lord, that, that you would draw alongside of them. We pray that you'd help them, Lord, and the things that they're going through, that you would be their helper, Lord, and that you would help us to love them like Christ loved the church. We pray for our children, Lord, that they would be raised up in the fear and the admonition of you, that, Lord, that, that your word would, would be uh, alive to them, that it wouldn't be foreign or religious, that it wouldn't just be something that, that, that they see us do or hear from us, Lord, but that it would become theirs, Lord. We pray for their salvation, Lord. If there's any uh, that are he represented here, Lord, with, with unsaved kids, we pray, Father, that they would come to know you, that you would draw them by your loving kindness, that your goodness would lead them to repentance, and that your spirit would open their understanding to the truth. Father, we pray that there would be no temptation that would take them, that you would protect them, Lord, from the deception of the enemy, that you would shield them, Father, that they might know uh, your peace and, and your protection, Lord. And we pray that over our own hearts as well this morning, Father. We pray that you would just deliver us from all temptation. We know that as the days get worse, that as the times uh, get darker, Lord, we know that, that the enemy has great wrath because he knows he has but a short time. And we see it all around us, Lord. We see the, the infiltration of, uh, of seduction and of uh, just despair and desperation and money love and pride and uh, wrath, Lord, rage and violence and corruption. And we just pray that you would protect our hearts from, from being drawn into the darkness. We pray you deliver us from temptation. That even this day, Lord, you would just set that, uh, that high wall around us, Lord, that our eyes would be given to the things that are holy and righteous, that our minds would be pure, that our meditation would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, that our hands would be given to the things of you, that we would love you with all of our strength, and that uh, you would just make this day your day, Lord, that, that starting out here, Lord, we would go forth and... and, and uh, and your will would be our, our food, Lord. And so we ask you, Father, that you would separate us. We pray that you would establish your calling in us as men, 
uh, in our homes, in our jobs, in our church, and in our world, Lord. And we just pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would give us your counsels and, and give us understanding and application of the things that we'll hear. We just give you thanks for this opportunity. We pray that you would bless each one in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we just did a, a series on the doctrine of God, and we follow it with what was going to be a week, but it probably will be a series, on the doctrine of Satan, um, to understand the adversary, the great enemy of our faith. And initially, I really thought one week, but it didn't take long as I sat down and began um, you know, sifting through thoughts and uh, prepping. It's probably going to be more than a week. <laughs> It'll be at least two, you know. But um, if you have a Bible, you can open it. Uh, we're not going to get there probably for a few minutes, but Ezekiel chapter 28. And if you want to, I have a verse to open up with. And, and um, if you wanted to open to it, it's just a single verse, but it's Proverbs chapter 27, verse 4. And it says, Wrath is cruel. And anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Now, we all know what it's like to be angry, and, and uh, we, we know what it's like to experience rage, you know, and we all know what it feels like to be envious of someone, you know. And, and by far the most volatile of, of, of all emotions is, is anger and rage. You know, when it boils up inside of you, and uh, it, it definitely has the most potency behind it as far as uh, energy in the moment. But it is not the most dangerous. The most dangerous of all emotions is envy. Because anger, you know, you get the quick burst of uh, explosive fire, but then it's gone, and you immediately cool down. Whereas envy produces a long, simmering boil, and the outcome of it is much worse. And, and, and you can know what that's like. If you've ever had someone who's been envious of you, it's much worse than having someone who's angry at you. Because when someone's envious of you, uh, if that envy goes unchecked, that envy will end ugly. And so it's a fitting verse as we consider this morning our great enemy because his motivation for hating us and for opposing us is not anger. He's not angry with us, although at times perhaps maybe he is, you know, but his motivation or the thing that causes him to hate us with such passion, it's fueled by envy. Uh, first of all, and we'll discover this more in depth as we go through, but first of all, it's an envy of God. Is that his demise, his downfall began as he was envious of the position, the power, the potency, the sovereignty, the authority of God. And that envy that he had for God caused him ultimately to become the devil that he is. And because man is created in the image of God, and Satan so hates God, that hatred for God is reflected upon his feelings towards men. He hates men, and the first part of it is stemmed from his hatred for God, because man is made in the image of God, and because God loves men. The other 
reason why Satan hates you and I, and it is also fueled by envy, is because of the position that we hold before God. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and in that we are made one with Him. Jesus prayed, didn't He? He said, Father, that they would be one, even as we are one, me and them and me and me and you, that we would be one. And the Bible over and over again talks about what it means to be in Christ. We're in Christ Jesus. And as those that are in Christ Jesus, we have been exalted to a very high position. And we have a, a place with God that Satan would never have had, even had he not fallen. And so he's envious of you and I, not just because God loves us and we're made in his image, but because of the position that we have been granted and given. The Bible says that we were created lower than the angels, but that in position we outrank them. We've been placed higher above them, and angels actually exist in part to serve us. And that's wild to think about. You know, not at our discretion and disposal, but at the Father's, that He has given them to be ministering spirits, to minister for those that will be heirs of salvation. And that is you and I. And so, therefore, Satan, fueled by envy, with an extreme hatred for men, is a powerful, motivated enemy of whom we are warned of in Scripture and told about. Now, in any war or any battle or in any situation where you have an adversary, the most important thing is for you to understand who that enemy, who that adversary is, and what his methods and strategies are. If you were in a war and you had a commanding general or a commanding officer, the first thing that he would do is that he would brief you concerning your enemy. He would sit, sit you down or your battalion or, or, or whatever, and he, and he would talk to you about who your enemy is, beginning probably at the very beginning of their national uh, I, you know, um, identity and, and going through their history and their culture and, and trying to make you understand the way they think and what drives them, what are their ideals, everything about their personality, and, and then bringing it into their army and their order and, and how they're... Uh, organized and, and rank and all the rest of that. And then these are their, this is their history. This is how they have, have made warfare, waged war in the past. And so this is what you can also expect in, in your encounter with them and doing everything possible to brief you and to help you understand who your enemy is, not just for the information that you'll gain in your mind, but for the experience that you'll then be able to uh, you, you know, play off of when you're waging war with them. And so the Bible tells us who our adversary is, who our enemy is with great detail, giving us his history, his beginning, where he came from, and then what happened after that and how he became who he is now and what he's about and the methods of his warfare, the attributes of his personality, what drives him. All of that is given to us in the pages of Scripture. And it's for us to understand those things so that we can be on guard against his desire to kill, to steal, and destroy. As Jesus said, that Satan goeth forth like a roaring lion, and his motivation is to kill, to steal, and destroy. And, and, and we are warned of that. And we are also equipped for that. That he says, no weapon that's formed against you will prosper. 
But part of that is that, you know, the Bible says that we are not ignorant of his devices. He ha- God has equipped us and told us what we need to know so that we can be protected. And so who is this, this uh, adversary? Who is this enemy of our soul and of our faith that we wage war against? And that's section one, if you're taking notes, is, is who is this man very simply? And so where we begin with very, very commonly, what are the names that the Bible ascribes to our enemy? There are 10 of them. 10 different names that the Bible gives to Satan in the Bible, all of which lend themselves to our understanding of who he is. And the one that's most commonly used is Satan. 55 times Satan is used, and and the, the, the definition of the word very simply is adversary. He is the great opponent of God and men. He is our adversary. And if we don't understand that we have an adversary, we lose before we even begin. To just think that everything is, you know, just going along and and, and we can uh, just walk and and make ourselves vulnerable and and not ever have to worry that there's ever going to be an attack or that, you you know, uh, then we're fools to begin with. You know, we have an enemy. There is an adversary. The Bible is very clear. Uh, The the second most common term, name given, is devil. He's a devil. Now, there are two different Greek words in the New Testament used for devil. One, we would say demon, which would be a henchman, a helper of Satan. And the other is devil, speaking of Satan himself. And and the word devil, speaking of Satan, the word means slanderer or false accuser. He is a slanderer or a false accuser. And, And he does that in every which way that he can, on any ground that he can, to anyone that he can. Satan will slander you to God. Satan will slander God to you. (laughs) Satan will slander you to someone else, and he'll slander someone else to you. And that's what he does. It's at the very core of who he is, is that he is a slanderer, uh, and a false accuser. And so he will make up stories. He, the, the Bible says that he's the father of lies. And that he is, he's a, the king of all liars. You know, And, and that's part of what he does. And, and if you understand that, then you're at somewhat of an advantage. Because it helps you to understand that when a thought just comes into your mind. You know, we'll talk more about this later on in, in the study, maybe not today, but Satan, when he comes, the way he speaks is that, you know, the Bible describes it like a fiery arrow that he fires. And it, and it, doesn't, it doesn't hit our physical body, it hits our mind. And so a thought will come into your mind, something, well, God doesn't love you. If God loved you, then you wouldn't be going through what you're going through right now. If God loved you, then you wouldn't be where you are at this stage in your life. You would be much further along or circumstances would be much different, you know, but, uh, but God doesn't love you. And so he, what he's doing, he's slandering God to you. And it comes like that fiery dart. It's just an arrow. And, it, and, and he's very good at doing it at a time when it makes perfect sense. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> Look at how things are going in my life. And, you know, if God loved me, things would be better, wouldn't they? And, uh, or, or he can do it with people. You know, uh, you know your wife. Your wife is cheating on you. Look at the look at the way she's acting right now, and he'll do he'll do it any way that he can, 
You know, and so whenever that you recognize that there's slander or false accusation, you begin to recognize where it's coming from because that's who he is. He's a slanderer. He's a false accuser. The third uh, thing, and I love this, he's called the tempter. He's called the tempter in the Bible. And the word that's used in the Greek when, in the New Testament when he's called that, the word literally means, and listen carefully to this, it means to try whether a thing can be done. To try whether a thing can be done to endeavor to entice and to examine. And that's, that's a, a powerful indicator of who he is and the way that he works within our lives. Is that what he'll do is, is he's, a, he's really the great fisher of men. You know, to, to, to kind of steal that term that Jesus used and apply it to Satan, he is a great fisher of men. Is What he'll do is he has a whole tackle box full of lures. And he'll, put, he'll just get one. That's why they call it a hooker. You know, and so he'll get it and he'll just dangle it out there in front and he'll see who, who's attracted and he'll just watch and then he'll see a fish come over. And just look at it. And he just observes. He watches. He tries to see whether a thing can be done. And, and then he gets, then he comes, what he does is then he, he sets up with the net. You know, the, the, the web, the world wide web, the net. So he gets the hooker and the net and, and he tries to, he, he sees, he just watches. That's all he does. And it might be something else. He'll, he'll here, crack cocaine. And he'll put it out in front of someone. You know, and, and he just watches, he just observes, he just takes notes. He's a tempter. He's trying to see what can be done. And we'll get more into that later on, but he's called uh, the, the tempter. Um, the, the, the next one is that he's called the accuser. He's called the accuser, and the word means like a prosecuting attorney. It's a, it's a legal term. It's a little bit different than a slanderer. You know, the slanderer is the one who slanders and lies. But this one, he's a prosecuting attorney, and, and so he's an accuser. And so what he does is he'll take our faults and he'll use them in his favor. So when we do something wrong, he'll first of all, he'll accuse us to ourselves. He'll say, look at what you did. You're guilty. That's why God hates you. Because look what you do. Look what you did. Look at your attitude. Look, listen to the way you talked to her or the way that you dealt with that fellow employee. And so, you know, and so he'll accuse us. Then he'll accuse us to God. You know, we see, we'll see that, uh, not this week, but we'll look at the beginning of Job at one point uh, in this. And, and, and he goes and he takes to God and, and he just brings our faults right to God. And he says, they call themselves your follower, but look what they do. You know, and you think of how when David sinned with Bathsheba, what did, what did God say to David? He said that, that you're going to have problems, and part of the reason you're going to have problems is because you have given the enemies of the Lord an opportunity to blaspheme. And so Satan takes our faults and he'll accuse us. He'll, he'll accuse us to other people. Why do people say the Christians, the church is hypocrites? Because Satan is really good at taking the faults of a Christian and putting them on the big screen so that everyone else in the world can see the hypocrisy of, of the church. That doesn't mean that we're, we're going to be perfect at any point, and, and that's not, you know, a word to make us feel like the, the slime that we are, you know, but, but, but that's what he does. He's an accuser, and so the Bible calls him the accuser. 
The next word that's used uh, to describe him, name that's given to him, is serpent. The serpent. And, and, you know, one of the blessings of doing what I do is that you're always learning. And I, I looked up what the word meant, and I was blown away by how big this word is. Um, this, the word in the Hebrew language that's used for serpent has all of these definitions. Listen to them. First of all, to whisper a magic spell. The word that's used for serpent is used to, to say that, to whisper a magic spell. The second one is to prognosticate. And I actually had to look that up in English as well because I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> but it means to tap into the psychic powers. To type into psychic powers. The third is to use enchantment. The fourth, and, and these two are so different, but the, it's they're so fitting. The fourth is to learn by experience. And the fifth is to diligently observe. And that one word is used in all of those different ways. You know, and, and all of those things describe the way that Satan operates, the way the serpent. That's why it says in Genesis, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had created. And so he whispers a magic spell. He, he uses psychic powers, he, you know, knowing things that no one else could know. He uses enchantments. He learns by experience, and he diligently observes. And all of those things, and that's why the Bible says that we'll see it in Ezekiel, hopefully this morning. It says that he is wiser than Daniel, that he seals up the sum, and that his wisdom is perfect. And that's what wisdom is, is just you, you learn, you observe, and then you know exactly what to do. You learn by experience and, uh, and diligent observation and then knowing how to apply that to, to your own ends. And so he's very wise, very subtle, and he uses all of those methods. He's a serpent, and he's called the serpent in both the Old and the New Testament. Um, and the culmination of his uh, you know, power in Revelation chapter 12, he's called the serpent you know, there. So he's, he's still the serpent. He still bears that. In the New Testament, uh, and it's, this name is used and it's synonymous with the serpent, he's called the dragon. He's called the dragon. And, it, and it's amazing how that's synonymous with the serpent. It's in Revelation 12. He's, that serpent and dragon, they're, they're linked together. It's just a, another name for the same thing. But the word dragon means a fabulous kind of serpent that's intended to fascinate a fabulous kind of serpent that's intended to fascinate. The next name that's given to him is Lucifer. He's called Lucifer. Only one time in the Bible. It's in Ezekiel chapter 28, which we'll get to this morning. But it means light bearer or prince of enlightenment. It's amazing, isn't it, that that's exactly what he used on Eve. In the Garden of Eden. He said, Hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And she said, No, of all the trees we may freely eat, but of that tree, God said, You can't eat it, neither can you touch it, or else you should die. And, and he lied to her and he said, You shall not die, but God knows that in the day that you eat of it, that you shall be like him, knowing good from evil. And that's why he told you not to eat from it, because he doesn't want you to have the power that he has. See, if you eat it, you'll be enlightened. And it says, when she saw that it was good for food, 
and that it was desirous to make one wise, you know, and that her eyes would be opened, she ate it. And she was enlightened. Her eyes were opened, and it brought destruction upon her. But that's who he is. He's the prince of enlightenment. It always seems like it's going to be so good. It's light. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 and 14, it says that Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. It always seems like it's going to be good. Lucifer. The next one uh, is Beelzebub. Jesus called him this. Beelzebub. And what it means is the dung god. If you don't know what dung is, get your English dictionary. <laughs> but, it, but literally, it means prince of wickedness. That he's the prince of wickedness. He's the wicked one. And then the other three are not single words. They're compound. Um, two of them, uh, actually one of them by Jesus, and then two of them by Paul. Jesus called him the prince of this world. The prince of this world. Three times Jesus called Satan that. John chapter 12, verse 31. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 30. And then again in John chapter 16, verse 11. Three times he called him the prince of this world. And the apostle Paul takes it one step further than that uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, and he calls him the God of this world. So the, the two things are basically synonymous. Uh, Jesus calling him prince and Paul calling him the God of this world, but lowercase g. He's not the uppercase g God of this world, but he's the lowercase g. G, uh, God of this world. And, 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 and so what does that mean? It means that he literally is the one who runs the show as far as it concerns the kingdom of this world. Now, the kingdom of God trumps the kingdom of men. And he, Jesus, is far above all principalities and powers and, and, and it says, and the rulers of this age. So the fact that Satan is called the God of this world or the prince of this world does not make his power to trump that of Jesus Christ. But what it does is it defines for us who is in control of the affairs of this life and of this world and the political systems of men. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, it's a classic passage. You, you know, if you've been through Sunday school uh, as a child, you know this passage when Jesus was tempted by Satan. Luke adds something to it that Matthew leaves out. It says that, that the devil took Jesus up into an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and the glory of them. And Satan said to Jesus, he said, all of this is mine and I give it to whosoever I will. And if you bow down to me, all will be thine. And Jesus, of course, says, Thou shalt worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. But he didn't argue with the claim that Satan made. Now, Satan knew who Jesus was. You can't pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. He didn't argue with him. He didn't say, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. No, 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 because it was true what Satan said. All the kingdoms of this world, he says, it is delivered unto me, and whosoever I will, I give it. You say, well, wait a minute, how so? Well, it was given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam was given dominion. Psalm 8 says that he set man over the works of his hands. But when man fell, he forfeited control of it to Satan. Satan became the usurper. He became, you know, whosoever you 
yield yourselves servants to obey his servants you are. Therefore, Adam became subservient to Satan. He bowed to him, and so therefore Satan usurped the authority over men, thereby taking control of the world in the course of its events. And so Satan can rightly say, all the kingdoms of this world are mine, and to whomsoever I will, I give them and the glory of them. Now the good news is, when you read Revelation chapter 5, there's a scroll that's written on both sides that's handed to the Lamb. The only kind of scroll that would be written on both sides is a title deed. On one side would be the deed, and on the other side would be the terms of redemption. And the double-sided scroll was handed to Jesus, who is the only worthy one. And you've got to read the chapter to get the full picture. But he's the one who's worthy, and he begins to loose the seals because it will all be returned rightly to his hand, to his control. But Satan is the god of this world. He runs the political show and the affairs of this life. And we'll talk more about that when we get into his methods and ways uh, later on in the, in, in the study. Probably not this morning. You know, Watching the clock, it's moving like a fan this morning for some reason. You know. Uh, and, then, and then finally, the last title that's given to him also by the Apostle Paul is that he is the prince of the power of the air. And that lends itself to an interesting dynamic in terms of his authority and the way that he rules things here in this world. That he's the prince of the power of the air. That, that means that he is the prince over invisible things, invisible influences. And so we talk about the airwaves you know, the things that come across the airways, whether it be over radio or over television or over media or even over the, 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 the transition of thoughts and ideas and the inspirations that, uh, that drive and govern the way men think, you know, that he's the prince of the power of all of that, is that he knows how all of that works and he's very good at using it and manipulating it to his own ends. You know, and so he's called that uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. He's the one who blinds the minds of them that believe not. He's the prince of the power of the air. And so just his names alone give us great insight into who our enemy is. And God has laid those things there for us to consider and think through and understand uh, concerning uh, who this adversary that we face is. Now, part two of this thing is then, well, what's his history? Who is the devil? Where did he come from? What, why, why is there a devil? And, and, and what's, the, you know, what's the story with him? So you're in Ezekiel chapter 28. There's two passages in the Old Testament that uh, answer that very question. Where did he come from? What's, what's his story, if you would? Actually, I told you to open to the wrong place. Hold your finger in Ezekiel 28 because we'll be back. Go to Isaiah 14 first. Let's start with this fall. We'll start with his fall, and then we'll go back to his beginnings. He didn't start off as the devil. How did he become the devil? Isaiah chapter 14. The prophet Isaiah begins talking about the king of Babylon. But after uh, 11 verses, he sees through the physical man of the king of Babylon into the spirit behind the king of Babylon, and he begins talking to the devil himself. And we gain from that great insight 
into where the devil came from. Look at verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 14. The prophet writes and he says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? And here's how he fell. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. His desire was to sit in the throne of God, to usurp and to take control over the position, the place, the authority of the Father himself. And it, it says, obviously he didn't succeed. Look at verse 15. It says, yet you shall be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? You look at what he, he does in this world and how he, you know, just can take down a whole society or a whole nation or cause genocide to take place in a region and just the instability, even the very instability that we see rapidly increasing in the world that we live in right now. And we know right where the source of that is. It comes right from Satan himself, the God of this world, as he just seeks to, to bring about his own ends. And yet here we get this idea that when we see him and someday we will see him, we're going to say, it was you? <laughs> it was you? You know, very probably unimpressive <laughs> at that time, you know. Or maybe it will be impressive. Maybe it'll look so glorious. Maybe it'll look so righteous. Who knows? You, this is the one that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners. And then he goes on uh, and he kind of brings it, folds it back into the king of Babylon in the physical sense uh, in, in those other verses. But flip over to Ezekiel chapter 28 for the rest of the story. And again, he begins talking about the king of Tyrus, but he brings it into, again, the spirit behind it to the devil himself. And here's, there's some great insight here. Probably more insight in this chapter into the history of Satan and his mindset than anywhere else in the Bible. It says, The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, Because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas, Yet thou art a man and not God, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. And now he switches gears and goes from the prince of Tyrus to the prince of this world who said the same thing, that I will be God. And notice what he says. He says, behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that they can hide from thee. With thy wisdom... And with thine understanding, thou hast gotten thee riches and hast gotten gold and silver into thy treasuries. 
by thy great wisdom and by thy traffic or merchandising or economizing, thou hast increased thy riches and thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches. Pride has set in because of your wealth. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers upon thee, the terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of thy wisdom, and they shall defile thy brightness. They shall bring thee down to the pit, and thou shalt die the deaths of them that are slain in the midst of the seas. Wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am God, but thou shalt be a man and no God in the hand of him that slayeth thee. Thou shalt die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, and now again, this is directly Toward Satan. Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And here's how we know he's not talking to the physical king of, of Tyrus. Look at verse 13. He says, Thou hast been in Eden. Now, the king of Tyrus was never in Eden, <laughs> there was someone else who was. Satan was in Eden. You seal up the sun, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You have been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Now, by the, the couple things here, you know, by the way, first of all, you see that Satan, Lucifer, was in Eden in glory. You see that? For, for those of you gap theorists, <laughs> For those that say, wait a minute, there was, there's a gap of time between Genesis 1-1 and, and Genesis 1-2 where Satan fell. No, no, no. He was in Eden before he fell, before he was made the devil. You, you, know, you know, think it through. That's not the purpose of our, our time here this morning, and I don't want to fight about it. <laughs> you can believe in the gap theory if you want. doesn't change anything for me. <laughs> he says, but, but notice what he says here. He says, thy pipes were prepared in the, in the day that you were created. Can you imagine what Lucifer was? I mean, here he, he's, he's the, the sum of wisdom and beauty. He's a, a walking musical instrument. <laughs> you know, he was you know, the worship leader, so to speak, the lead musician in, in, in heaven, you know, and that only begins to describe what his position was. Notice in verse 14. Oh, oh, one more thing at the end of verse 13. Do you see that what it says there? And this is what Satan doesn't want you to know. You know, you could write a book. You know, 10 things Satan doesn't want you to know. Here's one of them right at the end of verse 13. It says, in the day that thou wast created. That he is a created being. He is not the opposite of God. He's not the yang 
you know, the yin and the yang. You know, God is the, the light and he is the dark. No, 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 no. He is not the opposite of God, the opposite equivalent. He is created, created by God. And then he tells us, he elaborates, verse 14, he says, Thou art the anointed cherub. A cherub is a low-ranking angel. <laughs> he, it's a common angel. You know, and, and so he is, it says that he is the anointed cherub that covers, the covering cherub. So he's an angel, a fallen angel. Highly exalted in wisdom and in beauty. Given great position, great privilege, not necessarily great rank. Wasn't happy with that. But anyways, he says, and I have set thee so. In other words, God's the one that set him there. That in the wisdom of God, he was made to be what God made him to be. He gave him those talents, the wisdom, the beauty, and the position, the place, the rank. All of it was done. God says, I purposely set it so, that that's the way it was done. Thou, he says, the, the middle of verse 14, wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. We get the idea from Isaiah chapter 6 that that's in the very presence of God itself. You know, it was there that God said, who, you know, who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am. And so he, he grabbed a, a coal, one of these stones, and he touched the lips of Isaiah purifying. He's in the very presence of God himself. You walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created until iniquity was found in you. Until the day that uncleanness. You say, how did uncleanness present itself in something that was perfect? Verse 16 answers that question that we're all wondering. He says, by the multitude of thy merchandise, the traffic, the economic prowess, the ability to move things around and shape and shake up the economy, even of heaven, that should open some things in your thinking concerning heaven for those that think, well, heaven, we just sit on clouds and we have harps and, you know, we sit in our hammock all day in the cosmos and we just rest. You know, that's all heaven is. You know, there really isn't much. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Heaven, this is the shadow. That's the reality. The Bible says that these things are a shadow of that which is to come. Moses was told, make everything according to the pattern, the shadow that was shown to you while you were in the mountain. This is the shadow. That's the reality. I mean, think about the difference between a shadow and an object that casts a shadow, right? You, you could see my shadow. No, you can't. There, there, if you look at your shadow somewhere, you know, and then you say, well, describe what you see. Well, there's an outline. There, there's a... There's a um, What's that called? A silhouette, you know. But, but I, don't, I can't tell what the object, that's what this world is compared with that which is to come. In every way that this world has something, it is a shadow of what the reality is. And so heaven has a whole system. Jesus said that there'll be responsibilities given out there. You take charge over 10 cities. What's a city in heaven? Well, if a city here is a shadow of a city there, then what's that, you know? 
But heaven has an economy. There's a, there's some, there's a function, there's a method, there's a, an order to the way things operate there in glory. And Satan was an operator in it and a manipulator of it. He says, by the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Now, that should give you some insight. When you look at what's going on in the world economies today, and you say, what is driving it? You know what's driving it? Satan's driving it. My, my father, is a, he, he's, a, he's an old-school stockbroker. You know, stockbrokers today are, are more money managers than stockbrokers. You know, but in the old days, if, and, and I see a lot of gray, you know, you understand what I'm talking about, you know, what, what a stockbroker. And, and my father is very good, very successful. He's an economist. And he did very well by, by, by making wise analysis and then investing according, you know, according to, to what he, he learned. You know. and, and, and today, he's in the mid- middle of retiring. He's retiring. And the reason he's retiring is not because he wants to rest. He loves what he does. He goes to work at 4 a.m., and he's there until uh, 4 or 5 o'clock. When the mount- That's just his life. Seven days a week, 24-7, he eats, drinks, breathes economies and markets it's just it's just what he's become you know be that good or bad or whatever you know or indifferent you know he's retiring because there is no sense to anything that's going on in 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 the world of the economies anymore i mean i'm i know nothing i i think i'm Sometimes I call myself the milkman's son because I'm, I'm, I have none of that skill, you know, that he has, you know, to do those kind of things. But, but even I can see, okay, wait, there were 750,000 job, new jobless claims that just uh, it came through. The, the, you know, the unemployment rate has shot back up. You know, the part-time uh, hours, retail hours are through the, the floor, they've gone down some. I mean, all these different things that have just come out this week, and yet yesterday the market shot up 149 points. <laughs> There's no sense in it at all. And that's why he's retiring, because how do you operate in, in, in an environment like that, you know? And, and so who's behind that? Who's behind all this chaos that's going on, this, this nonsense? It's Satan. He knows how to manipulate it because it strengthens his hold, his position, and his agenda for planet Earth. He doesn't care about the elite or the people with money or the bankers. He doesn't care about any of that. He cares about one thing, lying, stealing, and destroying mankind. That's all he cares about. And he uses the means of the economies of men, the merchandising, to do it. Where did he start? He started in heaven. The multitude of thy merchandising has filled thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. And I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that, you may, or that they may behold thee. For thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic, the merchandising, the economy, the economic 
manipulation. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, and it shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. And all they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and shalt, and never shalt thou be any more. Do you notice the, the progression of iniquity? It starts with iniquity. He begins, iniquity is just uncleanness. It's just something that's it's like a check engine light. Something's not right. There's something that's foul. But where does it end? He says that it will become a fire that will consume from the midst of thee and it will end with your demise, your destruction. And that's what happened. That's the way sin works. It's just a little spark inside and it turns into a flame until it totally consumes and totally destroys. And that's, he was the first one. He was the first sinner. To, the first one to disobey God. And, and, and the multitude of everything. And, and, and you know, it, it, there's great depth to, if, you, if you follow the thoughts that are sown here concerning, you know, who Satan is. You know, th- think about this. Um, what's the sum of these things? You know, because we have to land the plane here. Uh, here's the sum of what we know about Satan from these passages and what we've looked at thus far. Is that first of all, he, is a cre- he was the created covering cherub. He's a created being. He was the covering cherub. He had an exalted privilege. He was in the very presence of God. He was the anointed cherub, the the worship leader in heaven. He was beautiful. He was wise. He was given all of this stuff. He had a great privilege, a great position, but he wasn't satisfied with his rank. He he wasn't happy to just be a cherub. And, And Paul gives us a warning. And so I'll throw this at you to just think through and consider. Because I've dealt with this in my own life, my own heart. Paul says this. He says, beware, especially in, among youths, and concerning this concept of position, concerning this concept of rank, he says, beware that you don't fall into the condemnation of the enemy. Don't fall into, and, and, and what is that? What's the, what's the condemnation of the enemy? Here's what it is. Is that Satan looked at himself and he said, I have all these gifts I have all this talent. I have all this wisdom. I'm obviously a few notches above everyone else here, and yet look at this lowly position that I've been given. Shouldn't I was created for more? I, I should be bigger than this. And so he wasn't happy with where God put him in life because he thought, well, I'm better than this. I deserve more than this. But what does it say? It says, God says, I have set thee so. God put him in that position, but he wasn't content to be where God had him. He thought that he should have more, and that ultimately led to his fall. Well, I'm going to use my wisdom. I'm going to use my gifts to make things better for myself, and it ultimately brought him to destruction. And so we know that about Satan. The third thing we know is that he was beautiful. He was talented. He was wise. He was ambitious. We know that he was corrupted by pride by merchandising, and then by violence. And then ultimately he was cast out and he was consumed by his own sin. And Jesus gives the warning in Luke chapter 10. And this is where we close. You can just open there. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus had sent out 70 people to go out. He gave them power over demons, over sicknesses, to cure and to heal and to preach. 
And it says that the 70 returned there in verse 17. They returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through your name. And Jesus said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. I saw it. I watched as Satan fell from heaven. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you, notwithstanding, in this rejoice not. Don't rejoice in the power that you have. Don't rejoice in the authority that you carry in my name. Don't rejoice that even the demons run away from you. Don't rejoice in any of that. But rather, he says, rejoice in this, because your names are written in heaven. Why did Jesus say that? Lord, this is awesome. Even the demons listen to us. And Jesus looked at them and he said, I beheld Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What was Jesus saying? Oh, I got one up on you. I saw Satan fall. No, 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 that's not the idea. Here's what he's saying. Beware of pride. Beware of spiritual pride. That's why Satan fell from heaven. Because he wasn't content to just be what God made him and to enjoy what God gave him. And that led to his fall. So don't rejoice in who you are or what you have, whether it's a lot or whether you think it's a little. Just rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And leave what you are and who you are in the hand of God. <laughs> so we'll pick this up next week. Um, we'll, we still have to talk about, we've done, um, we've done the, 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 uh, the names and we've done the history. So we still have to do uh, what's, what happened next. So where we are now is that Satan's kicked out of heaven. Then what did he do? And what's he doing now? And so we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about his destiny, where he's going to end up. We're going to talk about the attributes of his personality. And then, uh, and then we're going to talk about the weapons that we've been given to fight against him, the things that God has equipped us with. So we still have quite a bit to, to do on this. It's kind of an interesting study, isn't it? Yeah.